Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the All Music Books podcast where we talk to authors of music books, bios, history, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve J. We're back with part two of our conversation with reggae author and historian Roger Steffens about the life of Bob Marley. He had so many things to say about his book, So Much Things to Say, An Oral History of Bob Marley, that we split it into two parts. Here's part two. Your book has some really great history on the writing of I Shot the Sheriff. (laughs) Contradictory history. (laughs) You want to fill us in? Well, uh, Lee Jaffe, who was living with them at the time, said he helped Bob on the beach as they watched a couple of fat girls singing. Bob was strumming the lines, and uh, I shot the sheriff. Lee said he offered the line, but I didn't shoot the deputy. On the other hand, a fascinating woman named Esther Anderson, who had lived for seven years with Marlon Brando and then for a couple of years with Chris Blackwell and in 1973 fell in love with Bob, said that on a plane flight with Chris Blackwell, between Trinidad and Haiti, she and Bob wrote I Shot the Sheriff together. So I don't know. You weren't there. <laughs> I wasn't there. I wanted history to decide it. So I put both versions in the book. Did Esther Anderson also claim on helping with Get Up Stand Up? Or did I remember that wrong? I, I'm not sure now whether she helped work on that. She was trying very, very hard to give Bob some political education. She'd been to Africa. She knew all the major figures in the Black Power movement. Of course, living with Marlon Brando, there was probably nobody she couldn't meet. And uh, she was, uh, you know, in her own way, she was an intellectual. She wanted to give Bob a grounding in uh, (laughs) Marxism and other things, as did another woman I interviewed for the book, who was a PhD. So Bob was anxious to learn. They both gave him a sense that he had the power to influence masses of people, and he should be careful what he was saying and have an intelligent basis for what he was preaching. Those women uh, really did a number on his head. (laughs) You had mentioned Burning was the last record with the original Whalers. One story says Bunny says that he was voted out. No, that's not true. Not true? Blackwell told the Whalers that in England they were going to play freak clubs. That freaked Bunny <laughs> out. He didn't want to play in any freak clubs, you know, where hard drugs were being used and there were gay people flaunting mm. their homosexuality. You know, the, the treatment in, in the 70s of gay people in Jamaica was, was terrible. And I think with that as part of the common beliefs in, in Trenchtown, those were not the kinds of places that Bunny wanted to be seen in. So that's why he quit. That and the fact that <laughs> Blackwell told Bunny that he owed him money. Right. Is it true that Peter Tosh later confronted Chris Backwell with a machete? Oh, yeah. yeah and made him go to the bank and give him some money in Kingston. <laughs> wow. Kind of the Jamaican version of the ATM, I guess, or the drive-by. <laughs> <laughs> so Natty Dread is next, which many consider Bob's finest record. It also saw the introduction of the I-3s, or more properly, i 3 Yeah, they were originally going to call themselves We Three. Depending on whom you speak to, either Judy or Marcia, they said, well, we're Rasta, so we must be the I-3. But even they have put I-3s on some of their records. I use I-3 in the book because I think it's the, the true name. Okay. With their addition, his career took off 
on a constantly upward trajectory. I think you write in the book, that's partially due to the addition of the women, both visually and audibly. Well, I think Bob felt betrayed by Peter and Bunny. They had worked for 10 years together to build something. The whole arc of their story is promise and lack of fulfillment from Coxon through their own label, through Leslie Kong, who died right after they made their album for him, through Johnny Nash and Danny Sims, who couldn't break them, and then Lee Perry. And all of those failed. And that was year after year after year of busting their humps and, and not getting any reward for it. So Bob wanted something visual for the show. I mean, when, when Bob toured briefly for five shows in 1973 in America as opening act for Sly and the Family Stone, uh, they didn't connect with the audience at all. Those stories about him blowing Sly off the stage were just bull. That never happened. They were fired from the tour after five shows and left on the side of the road in, in Las Vegas. They, I mean, they'd come on stage in street clothes. Bob liked he looked like he just came off a factory line somewhere. And they were singing in Patois, which people couldn't understand. So they needed something different to spice up the act. The music was there. Bob's charisma was obvious. And with the addition of three beautifully dressed top female vocalists in Jamaica, that was the final element Bob needed to conquer the world stages and bring him into being a successful stadium act. Yeah, and all three of those singers, the women singers, had their own careers. Some of them quite impressively. I know, uh, you know, Marcia Griffiths and Judy Mowat in particular were, I wouldn't say legends, but they were very successful. Oh, yeah. I mean, after 60 years, Marcy is definitely a legend. <laughs> Judy abandoned Rastafari and became a Christian preacher, which is what she had wanted to be from the time she was a little girl. So she still sings in gospel shows, but she doesn't make secular music anymore. Hmm. You know, one of the more interesting characters, and I'll use that word in air quotes uh, in your story, is 56 Hope Road. What can you tell us about that? That was the residence Bob Marley took up in that I believe Blackwell either gifted or sold to him. Oh, no, he bought it from Blackwell for $125,000. Oh, that's a lot of money in Jamaica. It had belonged to an older woman who ended up staying there. Blackwell bought it originally from her and allowed her to stay. And when Bob bought it, she, she was allowed to stay too. Bob built a studio there. And it became an uptown hangout for all the uh, the rude boys from Tivoli Gardens and Trenchtown. Both sides of the political struggles came around Bob. Of course, they were mostly begging money and looking for his support. Bob brought the ghetto uptown, as he told people. And it was mostly a benign environment until the political warfare got so bad that people came and tried to kill him in 1976 in his own home. Yeah, the politics in Jamaica in the 70s was a very serious business. So can you tell us about the night of December 3rd, 1976? Well, it was um, shortly before elections were to be held. Bob was kind of co-opted into doing a concert. He wanted to do something, a free show for people. And before he had a chance to make the arrangements, signs started appearing around Kingston in uh, the latter part of 1976, saying that he was going to do a free concert on the lawn of the prime minister's residence. And to be associated directly with a political figure in Jamaica in those days could be suicidal. So Bob went to Michael Manley and, and complained. And after a long talk with him, 
it was decided that he could do a concert in Heroes Park Circle in another part of town that would have no political overtones whatsoever. And as soon as that was announced, Michael Manley declared national elections to be held following the concert. So by appearing on that stage with Bob that night, it would seem that Bob was endorsing the re-election of the socialist prime minister, Michael Manley. Immediately, he came under death threats. And there was a group called the Echo Squad who were guarding Bob's house day and night until the uh, evening, two days before the concert, uh, Friday, December 3rd, when those guards suddenly disappeared into the night. And about 8.30 in the evening, two carloads of gunmen pulled into the compound, and Rita was driving out at the time, and they shot her in the head, and they jumped out and started shooting everyone and everything in sight. And Bob was in the kitchen peeling a breadfruit, and I've been in that house, and the story is different from most of what has been told. Danny Sims was on the left of the doorframe talking to Bob, who was in this little tiny, it's like a pantry, on the right. And this kid, this young kid with a gun, came through the door, and he saw Taylor and shot him five times in the groin, turned toward where Bob was standing. It was maybe three or four feet from Bob and shot Bob, and the bullet came across his chest and lodged in his arm, and that bullet went to the grave with him. Everybody was rushed to the hospital. Rita had a bullet lodged in her scalp, you know, just under the skull. Uh, I think maybe her locks <laughs> saved her life that night. <laughs> Taylor was uh, medevaced the following morning to uh, Miami, where his life was saved. And Bob was released in the hospital after, you know, treating the wound in his arm. But if Bob had been inhaling instead of exhaling, that bullet would have gone right into his heart and taken his life. Someone explained to me a long time ago, who was raised in Trenchtown, that it's very uncool to look at the person you're shooting. It's much cooler to see you over there and just go like this. And that's kind of what the kid did with Bob. So it wasn't a CIA hit. If it was a CIA hit, they would have made damn sure that Bob was dead, Don Taylor was dead before they left the place. Nobody, thank God, died from that shooting that night, although I think five people were wounded. Yeah, and there are some different memories of that in the book, but several people do agree that if the shooters had seriously wanted Bob dead that night, he would have been. Yeah, of course. So Bob goes hiding up in the hills, surrounded by friends in Rastas. And, in, in Chris Blackwell's home. Oh, in his home. And in the Smile Jamaica concert, which you mentioned, uh, the Whalers were booked to play as Looming. And everyone has advice on whether Bob should play or not. And nobody really wanted him to go down. By the time that he was supposed to be on stage playing that night, there were 80,000 people in this square wondering whether Bob was going to show up. His American publicist at Island Records, Jeff Walker, was talking to Bob and said, if you don't go down there, it's just the same as if they had killed you. They wanted to prevent you from doing this concert, and if you don't go and do the concert, they will have succeeded in their plot. And Bob said, I'm not going down there without a machine gun. And Jeff said, Bob, 
your guitar is your machine gun. And something snapped. And by this time, uh, his wife, Rita, had uh, fled the hospital. She told me she stole a car from the parking lot. Mm -hmm. Judy told me she drove Rita up there. So I don't know what the truth is. Anyhow, Rita ended up at Chris Blackwell's home. Strawberry Hill, it was called. She was in her hospital gown. Bob grabs Rita and said, okay, baby, we're going to go do a show. And they jump in the police chief's car and go screaming down the mountain to the site where there are now 80,000 people. And Bob gets up on stage with a bullet in his arm and his wife singing back up to him in a hospital gown with a bloody bandage on her head covering a bullet that is lodged in her skull. And I said in the book, and I say again, there is no more incredible moment in 20th century popular music history than that moment of Bob defying the gunman out in the open and pitch black night. Anybody in the crowd could have had a rifle and just picked it up and shot him. What can you compare that to? Woodstock? It rained at Woodstock. <laughs> That's the, the ultimate moment in popular music. And he was virtually surrounded on stage, including people like Jeff Walker. I mean, there were about 100 people on stage, all putting their body on the line to protect Bob. Incredible. Um, there's a lot of theories, and you go through them in your book. Fascinating. You know, the politics, there's the Jamaican mafia and some horse racetrack money. What do you think is most likely? Well, I don't know if you've seen the Netflix documentary, Who Shot Bob Marley? They actually got Edward Siaga, the uh, right-wing prime minister who succeeded Manley in 1980, to speak just before he died. And he came closest to admitting what really happened when he said that he always had at least two people between him and whatever thing was being done, hmm. so they could not trace it back to him. All the people who came to shoot Bob were right-wing gangsters from the Jamaican Labor Party. The, the lead was Jim Brown, one of the most despicable criminals in the history of the country. And he was, you know, a hitman for Edward Siaga. Hmm. Whether Siaga directly gave an order or not, I don't know. Uh, I've talked to some people who said Siaga said this concert must not be allowed to go on because he was afraid it would swing the election to Michael Manley. But as a result, Michael Manley was reelected anyway two weeks later. Hmm. Maybe it was, you know, young gangsters trying to make an impression on, on the boss, but what would have been accomplished by murdering Bob Marley just baffles me. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're speaking with Roger Steffens. His book is So Much Things to Say, The Oral History of Bob Marley. And at this point, Bob Marley moves to London and records Exodus, which is one of my favorite records. And it appears that Miss World, who is a Jamaican, Cindy Breakspear, was quite the muse on some of those songs. Yes, she was. And Bob was deeply in love with her. He pursued her for years. She, she had a little apartment in, in that tough gong house in Kingston. It's been three years since I'm waiting on your line, Bob. <laughs> what Linton Kwesi Johnson says is the most beautiful love song ever written, Waiting in Vain. She, she was Bob's stability in London. Uh, she was a muse for him. She was an inspiration. And I think she was the great love of Bob's life. But it was awfully hard to stay in a relationship with someone who was on the road all the time. Yeah, that's right. And there's a, there's a massive tour behind the Exodus album. And I think the biggest in reggae history, is that right? To that point, it was, yes. It's on that tour that something very foreboding happens in Paris at a soccer match that would halt the tour. Yeah, that uh, soccer match was in, in uh, Paris between a group of French music journalists and the Whalers. And in the middle of the game, one of the journalists who had steel spikes on his shoes accidentally stepped on Bob's foot. There's, there's a picture, in fact, of it, the actual moment where he's stepping on Bob's foot. He pierced through the leather of the shoe and the toenail of Bob's big toe on his right foot. And he was carried off the field and taken to the doctor. And eventually tests were done that revealed Bob Marley had melanoma cancer that was already at the third stage. So the idea that the CIA might have paid somebody to poison his boot and give Bob Marley cancer is utter rubbish <laughs> there. That's just total nonsense. You cannot give someone melanoma. Right. And Bob was half white. His white father came from a family that uh, had multiple skin cancers and at least one case of melanoma. So it's a genetic thing. You know, people just don't want to believe that someone could die of natural causes so young. Right. Well, he would return to the stage in 1978 at the One Love Peace concert during another or the same political civil war in Kingston, Jamaica. Why was that show so historic? The One Love Peace concert was one of the most historic concerts in the history of the Caribbean. It was held on the 12th anniversary of Haile Selassie's visit to Jamaica. It was a night in which a peace truce was put into effect between the two warring parties. And the leaders of the gangs of both political party came on stage, shook hands, and danced around the stage as Jacob Miller sang Peace Treaty Special. And at the end of the show, Bob brought the two major political leaders on stage and made them shake hands in front of 40,000 people, a moment that his art director, Neville Garrick, compared to Christ on the cross between the two thieves. Hmm. I... I just think that was an unparalleled moment. The following year, I got to show Bob the video of that in Heartland Reggae, 
and he had never seen it before. Mm. Uh, he was asked what was going through his mind as he's standing there between these two men, Edward Siaga and Michael Manley, and whose names so many thousands of people had been murdered in Jamaica in the gang wars. What was he thinking? And Bob said, well, I'm a no politician, but if I'm not a politician, only one thing for me to do, kill them both. Yikes. Wow. Yeah. So it was on that next tour that you met Marley for the first time for the album Kaya. Is that right? That's right. I met him in uh, Santa Cruz in uh, July of 1978. One of the things in your book, I was really surprised to read there was definitely some criticism aimed at that record. A lot of critics called it soft, and some alleged that Bob had taken refuge in a ganja-induced oblivion after the assassination <laughs> attempt. I mean, that's pretty harsh. How do you view that record? Oh, that's nonsense. And, and the fact is, all the songs on Exodus and Kaya were recorded at the very same time hmm. in 1977 when Bob was in exile in England like he had had a year to rethink all the criticisms of the uh, Exodus album or the coming criticisms of, of Kaya. I mean, he had Ambush in the Night on that album. <laughs> it's right. not exactly shirking. Right. He had all kinds of songs, very important to show people the breadth of his compositional ability. But he did take to heart the criticism he got for Kaya. And he came the following year with maybe the most militant album of his life, but coming from a very different way from that other bookend of militancy, which was his first solo album in 74, Natty Dread. In uh, Natty Dread, he was saying, I feel like bombing a church now that I know the preacher is lying. Who's going to stay at home when the freedom fighters are fighting? And that was, you know, the eye for an eye. That was going out and doing battle and picking up arms if you had to defend yourself. But after he got shot, he changed radically. And uh, in 1979, when he released Survival, that album expressed his mature philosophy. If you're going to change the world, you must change yourself first, and that will radiate out to the world. And I was on that tour for two weeks with Bob. And in 2013, the Whalers asked me to open for them with my Bob Marley show for two months. Wow. And I would come out on stage and show pictures I took from the original tour of Survival and talk about the importance of the album and the meaning of the lyrics. And then they would come on stage and play the whole Survival album live. And it was fascinating to get in that great depth uh, of studying that record. Uh, Survival probably is his most significant album, if you want to know who Bob was and what he stood for. It's a great album. It's, it's definitely political. It also documents some of his recent travels to Africa and one to Gabon. Did those trips open his eyes to some of the realities in Africa? I know, you know, it was a long time mission to move back to Africa for a lot of Rastas. Well, he idealized Ethiopia and he couldn't get into it. <laughs> and he, he went instead to Kenya and he was walking down the street one day and there was an Ethiopian man walking toward him. And the guy recognized Bob Marley and says, what are you doing here? And he says, oh, I'm... Well, actually, I'm trying to get into Ethiopia. And he says, oh, well, I work at the consulate downtown. Come on, I'll give you a visa. So he came in from the south and went up to Shashamani, the uh, place where Selassie in, in 1966 had given land to repatriating Rastafari. 
and uh, was shocked at what he saw there, I think. It was an impoverished place, and they weren't welcomed by the locals who thought they were crazy for thinking Haile Selassie was God. And this was at a time when if you even possessed a, a little snapshot of Selassie, you could be put in prison in Ethiopia. Mm. So that it hurt him to see how disrespected Selassie was in, in his own country. Of course, this was after the coup that overthrew him. Gabon, uh, or as Lynn Quezzy Johnson corrected me on stage at the Tabernacle in <laughs> London, Gabon. 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 I always said Gabon, but it's Gabon. He was brought over by the uh, king or whatever it was, uh, daughter. He was in a fancy hotel and there were armed guards all around the place. And if any of the locals tried to get in to see Bob, they could be arrested. Mm. Uh, so Bob went out and brought the people into the hotel right. and just completely freaked out the management <laughs> and eventually was thrown out of the country. That's, that's something that had never been revealed before my book. That's a, a really interesting story. They, they were thrown out of the country and they were in a bus going off to the airport there was a riot back in the, the capital city from people who had expected to see Bob Marley uh, do a second concert for them, because the first one was just for the, the king and his cronies. They almost overturned the bus when the bus came back to the venue. Wow. Uh, and then after the show, they were all unceremoniously kicked out of the country. You know, one of my favorite chapter titles in your book is Madison Square Garden, Then Everything Crash. Well, I stole that title from the Ethiopian song, Everything Crash. Oh. If you know the Bob Marley story, you know what's coming. Can you give our listeners the dime version of that chapter? Bob toured Europe in the summer of 1980, filling stadiums all over the continent. Came back as a superstar, as opening act for the Commodores at <laughs> Madison Square Garden. That's a long story. That, that's, <laughs> that's in the book, too. The day after the second concert, which was a Sunday afternoon, the 21st of September, 1980, he was jogging in Central Park with Danny Sims and some other people in his entourage when he collapsed and started foaming at the mouth, had an epileptic fit. He was carried to the hospital. The doctors did tests and they told him he probably had three weeks to live. One of the attending doctors said there was more cancer in Bob's body than he had ever seen in another human being. Mm. And he suggested to Chris Blackwell, in fact, that Bob just go back on the road and continue performing until he would drop dead on stage and go out singing. But there was no hope for him. Somebody in his hospital room at Sloan Kettering spilled a glass of water and uh, somebody saw big piece of paper and started blotting the, the water with it and turned it over and saw it was an announcement that there was a famous German doctor going to speak, I guess, the next day at the hospital about his controversial cancer treatments at a clinic in Bavaria, a doctor named Joseph Issels. And the Issels story has never been told properly, but his wife told me what really went on. Issels finished his medical education in the 1930s and went to work in a Catholic hospital in Germany as the Nazis were coming to power. And the head of the Catholic hospital told Dr. Issels that he should join the SS for career advancement. And he did. And in 1937, he was ordered by the SS not to treat any Jewish patients. And he refused. 
So he was kicked out of the SS and drafted into the army and eventually captured as a prisoner of war by the Russians. When the war ended, he started treating cancer patients with very controversial naturopathic treatments. And he was sued for being a quack. And they investigated him for months and they realized that he had actually helped some people who had terminal cancer survive, maybe 10%, but still a significant amount of people. And so they gave him back his medical license and he continued to treat people. Bob wanted originally to go to the clinic in Mexico where Steve McQueen was being treated, but he died. <laughs> so they took him off to um, Germany and uh, I guess it was early, early November, 1980. And he stayed there almost to the day he died. You know, Issels eventually gave up treating him. He couldn't do anything more for him, but kept him alive for about seven months after he'd been told he had three weeks to live. Right. But there were things that I couldn't put in the book about people from Jamaica coming and giving him food he shouldn't have been eating and doing things that the doctor had forbidden. You know, he had a couple of days in the hospital in Miami and died there on uh, May 11th, 1981. And you wrote, his final show was in Pittsburgh. And one of the interesting facts I learned from your book is he, he did some pretty interesting songs during soundcheck, which certainly pointed to he knew what was up. Well, he always knew what was up. You're referring to him singing Another One Bites the Dust. <laughs> That's the one. Yeah. He had, he had gone to see Queen at Madison Square Garden ah. and heard the song there and was singing it in, in his final soundcheck. And the band couldn't understand why he was doing that. His, his uh, engineer, Dennis Thompson, told me that. So I trust that it's absolutely true. But Bob was a prophet. Steve, back in uh, 1966, no, 1969, on one of his trips to Delaware, when he was working in the Chrysler factory, he had two young friends in Wilmington, Ibis Pitts and Dion Wilson, that he used to hang out with. Ibis had a little kind of African arts and crafts store across the street from Bob's mother's house. And one day they were talking with Bob and saying, oh, you know, Bob, you're going to be a big star. You're going to have a long life, lots of kids. You're going to be world famous. And Bob said, no, no, no. When I'm 36, I'm going to die. Bob was 24 at the time. Hmm. Now, that's a very odd thing for a young man to be thinking about, let alone express. Let alone be right. They were so concerned by this that they went to his mother and told her what Bob had just told them. So I've got on tape Ibis, Dion, and Bob's mother all telling me the same story that Bob at 24 predicted his own death at 36. Now, three witnesses, that's, that's good enough for an right. oral history. And somewhat poetically, his final song in Pittsburgh, which was the final song he'd ever play, was... Bob's last song in Pittsburgh on September 23rd was Work. And it was a song written by his longtime friend, Seiko Patterson, who had brought him to his original audition at Coxon and played drums in the band. And he was coming uh, into a rehearsal at Tough Gong on a bus, and Seiko was singing, counting the miles, five miles to go, four miles to go. And he sang the song for Bob when he got to the rehearsal, and Bob says, I like that, but change the miles to days. So that's on his final album, a song called Work, which counts off the final days of Bob's life. And it was done in a medley with Get Up, Stand Up. So Bob's final number was Work, Get Up, Stand Up in a medley. Quite fitting. 
We're speaking with Roger Steffens, the author of So Much Things to Say, The Oral History of Bob Marley. It's an incredible book. You have remained in touch with many of the people in your book through the Reggae Archives Project. Tell us about reggae archives. There, there doesn't seem to be much reggae music, sadly, anymore today. No, reggae is in retreat, unfortunately, and the dance hall took it over with its slackness and killed a lot of the consciousness of it. But there are still wonderful young artists like Protégé and Kabaka Pyramid and Chronix and John Ine making roots music in Jamaica. It just doesn't have the broad audience it used to have. The reggae archives, which uh, as we talk, you can see behind me in our main room here. This is Reggae Central. It, it fills now seven rooms of our home in Los Angeles, floor to ceiling. It has over 300,000 titles in various formats. 1,500 t-shirts, probably 2,000 posters, 30,000 flyers from all over the world, statues, art, various things. <laughs> Up on the shelf behind me there, there are seven Ukrainian nesting Marleys. Oh, wow. <laughs> Odd things. It's been 47 years of my life, and uh, the collection started with the issue of Rolling Stone that had the article on reggae by Michael Thomas. And every time I ran across anything to do with reggae or Jamaica or Selassie, uh, anything that peripherally had to do with the culture, I, I saved it. And we've had to move twice to house the collection. Uh, it's destined to become a museum in Montego Bay. We're working on oh, that right now. Wow. And I can't talk about it publicly yet, but it, it, it looks pretty good right now. Yeah, very cool. Well, I learned a lot. Most of my foundation probably was from your magazine, The Beat. I read that religiously. And uh, Linton Quasi Johnson and, you know, like I said earlier, The Clash name-checking some of the bands in White Man and the Hammersmith Palais. I'd say, well, who's that? I got to go check it out. So, you know, I'm so happy to have you on. I know a lot, or I think I know a lot about reggae, but I always learn more when I speak with you or read what you wrote. Where can people go to check out the reggae archives? Well, there are some parts of it that are on a site that we started in 1996 when I was working with uh, a renewed Jad Records uh, series uh, that collected all the pre-island material, all of Bob's Jamaican singles called The Complete Bob Marley and the Whalers, 1967 to 72. So you guys at Rounder Records, Heartbeat Records, did the definitive collections of the Coxon initial era. And then from Whalen Solem on up through the beginning of Ireland, uh, that is to be found on the Jad Records series. And we started a, a little website at the time. I don't really do anything much on it, but it's got some interesting material there called reggaesupersite.com. Okay. And uh, you know what I would also like to mention here today is something I would like your listeners to be aware of, the great Toots Hibbert, who passed away recently. We've started a petition to get him into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I would like anybody who's listening to this who loved Toots music to get on that bandwagon with us. It's very simple. Go to niceup.com, N-I-C-E-U-P.com. And there is a petition there to get Toots into the Rock Hall. It'll take you less than a minute to go to the site and sign it. But it would be very important. As I'm recording this now, we have a goal of 5,000 signatures, and we're up to about 3,400. And uh, most of the people who signed it left wonderful little personal 
uh, notes and reminiscences of Toots that are fun to read too. So please go to niceup.com and help us get Toots into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Well, I did on your behalf, and thank you for sharing that. I want to thank you, Roger, for helping us out, and I want to also tell our listeners, this book, you've probably read, it's a Bob Marley book. This one's different. So I highly suggest you all go read it. It's, it's really, really good. Thank you, Roger. My pleasure. And I guess I should uh, plug my Instagram that my kids started for me. Too. <laughs> sure, go right ahead. I had 40,000 slides sitting in the closet. Uh, and in 2013, my son Devin sat in the corner back there and spent an entire year digitizing 40,000 slides. And then Kate, our daughter, said, why don't I start an Instagram? And I'm really techno-igno, so I had no idea <laughs> what she was talking about. And she told me, and she started it and called it the family acid. I said, why would you call it that? And Kate said, well, when I was growing up, all my friends told me our family was like the Waltons on acid. <laughs> I think that's a compliment. We now have 54,000 followers, and I'm represented by a major gallery in Chelsea in New York, and I've been in Art Basel and Paris Photo and museum shows. At 78, I've got a whole new career thanks to my oh. kids. And what's, what's the Instagram account name again? The Family Acid, all one word. Instagram.com slash The Family Acid. And there's stories with each of the pictures, so there's stuff from my 26 months in Saigon, from a year living in Marrakesh and the Medina after the war and all my travels around the world doing the Bob Marley show. And uh, there's stories with each of them. You'll, you'll get a kick out of So thefamilyacid.com. And Steve, it's great to renew our friendship here. Absolutely. It's just, it's really nice to talk to you and get the story of Bob from perhaps the preeminent source that, that I know of. So thank you again. My, my great pleasure to be here with you and Jala of everyone. If you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning into Deep Dive, an all-music books podcast. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. 
That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.